0: Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. Today's message is on the announcement. Of the good news of great joy. So last week we learned from Luke chapter 2, verses 10. This was kind of our our key text of scripture, Luke 2, verse 10 and 11. It says, And the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And last week we talked about this whole idea of being afraid and God meeting us in our fear and telling us not to be afraid, that He had good news for us, that the birth of Jesus and the coming of God into the earth in human form is good news of great joy and it's for everyone, it's for all the people. And then we learned that when He was born in the city of David, He's our Savior, He's Christ, and He's Lord Well, this week I want to continue to talk about the joy, the good news of great joy that came to us in the birth of Jesus. And I want to start with a quote from a gentleman named William Treadwell. And I want you to listen carefully. I don't know if this quote will be on the screen, but I want you to listen carefully to this quote. It says here, if we can convince people that we are on to something that's full of joy, they'll stampede one another to follow us. Let me say it again. Think about this statement. If we can convince people that we are on to something that's full of joy, they'll stampede one another to follow us. Think about that. Joy is powerful and contagious. You ever been around somebody that really got a case of the giggles? Had true joy coming up and they start to laugh and They're they're really laughing, and they start to let go, and that joy is coming, and they can't stop themselves, and in a minute or two, you're starting to giggle, and then you're starting to laugh, and then it kind of spreads through the room, and before you know it, everybody's guffawing. I've always loved that word and wanted to use it in a sermon. I don't think I ever have. Everybody is guffawing and laughing, and, and it's hilarity comes, and when you get around those kind of situations where there is joy, it's interesting, the Bible says... That the kingdom of God is not in food or drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we know that when God's kingdom is present, there's joy. And it's really sad if you think about it, because many Christians think that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is a joyless place. I think that heaven and the new heavens and the new earth are going to be filled with hilarity, with joy, with pleasure. In fact, I have come to believe, as Dallas Willard says in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, I've come to believe that God is the, not only the source of all joy, but He is the most joyous person, not human, person there is. That God is filled with joy. And I believe that joy is contagious. People want to be around events and other people who are full of joy. One of the most joyous events a person can experience is the announcement that a baby is coming. When we learned of our first granddaughter, I felt almost overwhelmed. I want to tell you, my, my son and my daughter-in-law came into our house, and I, I think it was at Thanksgiving, was it, it? was at Thanksgiving a few years back before our little Abigail was, was born. And uh, they stood in the kitchen, we were kind of around, some other family there, and they took out, um, they, they I, I can't even, to be honest with you, I'm gonna ta- I can't remember how they did it. I just know, well, it was, yeah, it was a picture frame, I knew that, but I can't remember how they announced it. They gave us a picture frame with, you know, uh, a, the ultrasound picture of the baby. I remember, Peggy's way more tuned in and women always are, I'll just say that. <laughs> I was kind of, duh. It took me a minute to understand what happened. Everybody, you know, my wife's starting to rejoice and I'm standing there, I'm just kind of in shock and it hits me, I'm going to be a grandpa. And I'm not kidding you, I got lightheaded, (laughs) felt a little bit stunned, started to well up and feel like I was going to, there was something primal inside of me. There was something that I can't even attach to anything other that there's something built into us as human beings when a baby's going to come. And the reason I bring that up is because when Jesus came into the world, creation was in that state. It's hard for us to understand this, but Romans 8 speaks of all of creation kind of groaning. Creation is awaiting its redemption. It's almost like, uh, in fact, Greek scholars say that where it, it speaks of the creation is, is in longing expectation It's a Greek phrase that means it stands on tiptoes. So there's this picture, there's this idea... That all of creation was standing on tiptoe, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Son of God, waiting for the Redeemer to show up on the scene because creation, like us, is groaning. We recognize, all of us in this room, recognize that even though there are so many beautiful, wonderful things in our world and God has given us so much, we recognize that creation has fallen and broken, and we're fallen and broken, and we we understand that the clock of who we are, it's winding down, and death awaits each of us, and we, we get that reality, and then we're faced with horrible loss and tragedy, even around this time of the year, and it's so easy to just begin to kind of get hopeless, but creation feels that way too. I'm not trying to ascribe personage to it, but Paul says it in Romans 8, there almost seems to be this waiting of expectation, this standing on tiptoes, come and fix us. Make it right. And it was waiting with expectation. So when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and he announces what theologians call the Annunciation, when Gabriel comes on the scene and he announces, That Jesus, that the Messiah, that the Savior of the world is about to show up. It's as if all of creation goes, Yeah! That's why when the angels showed up and they announced it to the shepherds, suddenly it says the sky was filled and they were all singing, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward all human beings, toward all men. That's why they were saying it because creation had been waiting for this moment. Does that make sense? Today we're going to learn about this Annunciation. I want you to look with me at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And we're kind of going backwards because last week we were in Luke 2. We're going to go back to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And it says this, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. There it is again, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Isn't that powerful? Now, before I can break this down and just draw out some Some thoughts for us and and look at what maybe God is saying to us through the text. I want to kind of give you a little bit of the background to the people, the characters, the place, the history. I think it's important for us to understand who we're dealing with here. And the first thing I want to just make note of is who Gabriel is, the angel Gabriel. This angel of God, his name means strength of God, or God gives strength. He's the great and powerful messenger angel who seems to be the chosen angel that God sends throughout the Bible when the most important events in human history are about to happen. So that's who Gabriel is. We see Gabriel in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. He shows up on the scene, he's named, and he once again speaks into what is about to happen on planet Earth through, through Daniel. Well, here he's coming on the scene to say, the Son of God's about to come into the earth, and it's going to happen with you. And then we have Mary, a humble girl, probably in her mid-teens, according to the custom of the time, we know that Mary was betrothed to Joseph, which was typically a one-year engagement that was considered a marriage, but without intimate relations. From what we see within the Scriptures, Mary seemed to know the Bible very well. Later, she, as she proclaims praise to God for what He has spoken to her, she quotes all throughout the Old Testament. So this young lady knew the Scripture, and uh, she seemed to know the Bible very well, be very devout in her faith from a very poor background, and yet from David's family line. And then we we see this person, Joseph, based upon what we know about the life of Joseph. He was a carpenter or stonemason. A lot of people don't realize that, but the, the Greek word that's often translated carpenter in the New Testament also could have meant stonemason. Isn't that interesting? So he could have been a carpenter or a stonemason. We don't know for sure. That'll blow some of you away. You're like, oh no, I always thought Jesus was a carpenter's son. Well, he might have been a stonemason's son, but that's For another time, Um, he was probably considerably older than Mary. Some scholars say maybe anywhere from early to mid 20s all the way to over 30 years old. And uh, he was also from David's family line, and he was an honorable and upright man. The scripture teaches that. And then, of course, we have Jesus. It's here in this text that we begin to learn about the identity and the miraculous conception of the Messiah. We also learn that he fulfills the prophecies and the necessary background to be the king of Israel. And then we have Elizabeth, Mary's relative Elizabeth is mentioned here as the recipient of a unique miracle as well. In her old age, she's conceived a son with her husband. She would have been a post-menopausal woman who suddenly got pregnant. Only God can do that. They had a son named John, John the Baptist. Many of you will remember John the Baptist. He becomes a forerunner to Jesus. He's Jesus' cousin. And then the place in the history. The people of Judea and Galilee were of Israeli descent. Though there was also a large Greco-Roman population in that part of the world at that time. They were under the domination of the Roman Empire. During the time of the conception and the birth of Jesus, the Jewish people had grown very weary of Roman domination and were quite ready for their Messiah. Because of this, many false messiahs and self-made military leaders arose from the common people, only to suffer brutal defeat by the Romans. And it was happening all the time. These Christ figures, they would actually, many of them stand up and announce that they were the Messiah. They would try to gather around small little armies and fight against Rome, believing that they were going to be the ones to overthrow the Roman Empire. And again and again, they were crushed. The religious community was divided into various, what we would call denomination, different sects that existed at that time. Those who lived in Nazareth were quite isolated from the happenings of Jerusalem and its religious community. Nazareth was an agricultural community, and its people lived very modestly for the most part. Nazareth was kind of considered boondocks, backwater, kind of like Moses Lake to Seattle, That's how the world of that time would have looked at Seattleites look at Moses Lake. They're like, that's kind of boondocks over there. Well, that's kind of how Nazareth was. Jesus kind of came from a Moses Lake type place. Woo! Now, let's look at the announcement. And and just notice a number of things. The announcement is truly... Good news of great joy. And, and here's what it is. The first thing is that we notice in the text is that this good news of great joy is that God favors us. The grace of God belongs to us. Verse 28 and 30, it says that the angel said to Mary, greetings, O favored one. And then verse 30 says, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, now let me just be really clear about something. I think Mary deserves a lot of special honor within the church. I really do. She's a special woman in the lineage of of God's people. Very special. But she does not deserve to be put in a place of being more highly favored than any of the rest of us who are recipients of Jesus Christ and his gospel. See, what Mary is for us is a forerunner. If the angel of God showed up on the scene right now, he could say virtually the exact same words to you and I who are believers in Jesus as he would have said to Mary because the gospel is this. Greetings, O favored one, for you have found favor with God. It's the idea of grace. God gives it to us, though we're undeserving. And so the first thing we see in the good news in this announcement to Mary that also belongs to us and she's a forerunner of, is that she's a recipient of grace. Listen, God didn't choose Mary because somehow she was better than everyone else, more holy than everyone else, stood out above everyone else, and she was sinless. And some parts of the church teach she was sinless. That is absolutely not true. She was a sinner just like you and I. She had failed just like you and I. She had fallen short of the perfect glory of God just like you and I. But she was a recipient of amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So never buy this idea that somehow Mary was more holy than anyone else. She was favored by God and she was holy because God had set her apart for that purpose. That's what holy means, set apart. Does that make sense? See, she didn't find favor with God due to anything that she had done to merit favor. God chose her for his own good pleasure. Play a very special part in history. We are favored in the same way that Mary is, and heaven is smiling on us, and God's disposition toward us is one of kindness because of Jesus. Amen. Secondly, the good news of great joy is that the Lord is with us. And he said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. What is the message of the New Testament gospel? God is with us. God came to us. God chased us down. This rebel race called humans has been running from God since the garden. And God has chased us throughout the story of the Bible. The whole Old Testament, the New Testament is the story of God's pursuing human beings. Some people make it sound like the Bible is a story of all these great men and women who pursued God and it couldn't be further from the truth. The story of the Bible is not all these good people who God somehow was like, whoa, I need them on my team because they're so amazing. It's the story of messed up, broken sinners who keep getting chased by a good, kind God to restore them and redeem them. That's the story of the gospel. Amen. Amen. There's hope for you. There's hope for me. Come on, you know as well as I do. Some of you that are sitting here today, you're like, I'm a rebel, and I know it. <laughs> Welcome to the human race. Welcome to the recipients of grace. God chases rebels. Now, I would encourage you, once He gets a hold of you, don't keep being a rebel. There's a hard road for children of God who are rebels, it's tough. See, when the, angel, when the angel Gabriel declared to Mary that the Lord was with her, he was declaring to us that God is with us as well. One of the titles or the names of Jesus, as I said earlier in the service, is Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. We'll never be alone again. God will never leave us or forsake us. I've shared this a quote many times here, actually, because it's so powerful, but Bono, the singer of U2, many of you know who U2 is. He said this years ago, he'd gone to a service, um, he'd returned home from a long tour, and he returned to Dublin, and he attended a Christmas Eve service, and at some point in that service, he grasped the truth at the heart of the Christmas story. Now, he was already a follower of Christ, but he said this. This is what Bono said. He said, in Jesus, God became a human being. And then he says, with tears streaming down his face, Bono realized that that the idea that God, if there is a force of love and logic in the universe, this God, that it, It would seek, that that person would seek to explain himself is amazing enough. That it would seek to explain itself by becoming a child born in poverty and straw. A child, I just thought, wow, that sounds like Bono, wow, right? Except with an Irish accent. Just the poetry. I saw the genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this. Love needs to find a form intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh because God is with us. Amen? Third, the great news, the good news of great joy is that salvation has a name and that name is Jesus. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. I shared this last week, but it, it's worth repeating. The name Jesus means that God is our Savior. I told you last week, Jesus is, you know, basically a different form of what the Hebrew word would have been. His name would have been Yeshua. We would say Joshua. Many of you probably didn't know that Joshua and Jesus are the same name. Okay, so Yeshua or Joshua is the name of Jesus. And Yeshua means Yahweh, Jehovah, God, right? Is salvation or has saved. So Jesus' very name captures his mission. He's our Savior. The name Jesus means God is our Savior and that God is salvation. This word Savior could be translated as rescuer. I shared that last week as well. The sin inside all of us that manifests in evil thoughts and deeds can now be cut off at the root because of Jesus. He's also the one who rescues us from the attacking evil of our time and our day. The system of the age that assaults our mind. The demonic presence that is active in the world. That that, that presence, that sense of evil that we all experience at different times. And we can't put our finger on it, but we know there is something assaulting our thoughts, something maybe even assaulting our physical being. And a lot of times we want to resist the idea that there are such a thing as demons, or evil, or the devil. But the scripture makes it very clear that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood or human beings, but against principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places, the the spirit of darkness in our age. There is an evil presence in the world that fights human beings, seeks to steal, kill and destroy. And Jesus is the rescuer that came to crush the head of the serpent and break the back of the devil and live inside of us and conquer evil through us. Amen. See, because he is God and man, he's able to bridge that gap between God and humanity and be our savior, be our rescuer. The next point is that the good news of great joy is that Jesus is God's son and the great one. The Bible knowledge commentary says this, the fact that her baby was to be called the son of the most high pointed to his equality with Jehovah, with Yahweh. In Jewish or Semitic thought, a son was a carbon copy of his father. And the phrase son of was often used to refer to one who possessed his father's traits or qualities. I I put here, Jesus is the goat. How many of you are familiar with the term the goat? Greatest of all time. It's used all the time when speaking of sports figures. People always debate as to whether LeBron James or Michael Jordan is the goat. It's Michael Jordan, by the way, just so you know. But Jesus is the greatest and most influential man to have ever walked the face of the earth. As a man, he only lived into his mid-30s, yet he changed the course of human history. We now have a perfect example and a model of greatness unlike the examples of pop culture and politics. We have someone to truly mimic And model our lives after. He's our true hero. I decided a long time ago that when I grow up, and someday it's coming, (laughs) hon. Peggy regularly reminds me that I act like a 10-year-old. And of course, that just feeds the fire. I just want to act like a 10-year-old more when she says it. But I've always felt like since I became a Christian that when I grow up, I want to be like Jesus. Amen. Now, I don't want to be like some politician. I just want to be like Jesus. And here's the beautiful thing. When I see Jesus in people, I, I, I can follow that. I can learn from them. I can draw from them. And you can as well. But I'm telling you, he's the son of the most high. And the scripture says he'll be great. And he is truly the great one. If you want to find somebody to model your life after and copy, follow Jesus. Look at Jesus. Open him up in the Gospels and chase him. Look what he's like. Number five, the good news of great joy is that God's kingdom is here and it's growing. I'm going to have to move through these quickly now. But it says, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Right? When Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago, he inaugurated a kingdom that begins in the heart of human beings through simple faith, and then it spreads into the entire earth. At this very moment in heaven, Jesus is ruling from his throne, waiting for all of his enemies to be made his footstool. One day he'll return and take full possession of the earth, and he will finish with a full reign over all. That's where this is going. He planted a kingdom. Isn't it interesting? Jesus always spoke about seeds. When you look in the, Old, or in the New Testament, when you look in, especially if you look at the 13th chapter of Matthew, there are all these parables, and they almost all have something to do with seeds. And he tells us over and over, the kingdom of heaven is like a seed. And then he'll tell a story about that seed. It's because seeds start very small, and they get implanted, and then they get, you know, cultivated, watered, and they they grow up and become great things. And that's what's happening on planet earth right now. 2,000 years ago, Jesus started planting the seed of his rule, of his kingdom, of his reign in the hearts of human beings. And he's still doing it today. And here's the beautiful thing. When the kingdom gets planted as a seed, it starts to grow inside of you, and it starts to take over it starts to possess every part of your life. It starts to deal with the stuff in you that's crooked and wrong and even immoral and twisted. And, and then what happens is as you come in contact with other people. It, it spreads to them. And then before you know it, it works its way out into every area of society and it touches every corner, even the dark places, even the places nobody wants to look at or talk about. Why is it that Christians all through history have been the ones that have been involved in abolishing slavery, establishing hospitals, uh, uh, starting universities, working with the sex trade? I mean, you go out there, you want to know who's doing the really dirty, nitty gritty work in the darkest, most evil places on planet earth? It's the followers of Jesus. Everywhere you look. Who's fighting against sex trafficking and sex slavery? Christians. They're the ones getting right in there. They're risking their lives. Why? Because we understand something. We understand that when you bring light into darkness, light wins. Right? And that kingdom is spreading on planet earth. The good news of great joy is that the Holy Spirit will conceive new life in us. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, I realize we're different. A true, in flesh, human conceived in the womb of Mary is different than what happens in us. But the same thing happens on the day of Pentecost and throughout the Bible, the story of the New Testament and of the church of Christians is that the Holy Spirit, listen, the Holy Spirit will overshadow us, will come upon us, overshadow us, and the power of the Most High will overshadow us, and something will happen inside of us. That is the beauty of the New Testament. You must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born of water and spirit to enter the kingdom of heaven. The Bible is full of this mystery of the Holy Spirit conceiving the very life of God in human beings that were lost and broken and twisted. And that happens when we put faith in what Jesus Christ has done in his death, his burial, his resurrection, in his life, and who he is. When we trust Jesus, we're born anew. A new life is conceived in us. Amen? Amen? Number seven, the good news of great joy is that God makes all things possible. For nothing will be impossible with God. God did an amazing miracle in Elizabeth and then, and then an even greater miracle in Mary. The conception of a baby in a postmenopausal woman is a miracle. Amen. The conception of a baby in a virgin is beyond anything ever previously imagined. If God can cause a virgin to have a baby, he can do anything that the mind can imagine and more. If the impossible thing we need is in God's will, with God it becomes possible. Amen? Let me say that again. If the impossible thing that you need is in God's will, with God it becomes possible. Nothing will be impossible with you. And that is my last point. The good news of great joy is that we can serve God and believe what he says. Verse 38b, and Mary said, behold. I... Look, look, let me tell you something. You want to know how to respond to Jesus? Today even, right now in this room. Because, you know, here's the thing. I hope you don't come here to get a good uplifting sermon and a little bit of good music and then go about living your life the same way you lived it before you came here. I hope that when you come here on a Sunday and you gather with us, you're really, like, you're there to say, God, have your way in me. I need to hear from you today. What are you up to in my life? What are you saying to me? Right? I hope you don't come and and get tripped up over the vessels, whoever we may be. I hope you don't come in and make it about, will that guy entertain me, tickle my ears and make me feel good. I hope that's not why you're here. I hope rather you're here to say, God, through a flawed human vessel, talk to me and bring me to a point of decision and change. Because if you're anything like me, I know every day when I get up, Something's got to change in me I need more of God to possess my life I need to be liberated from those things Which trip me up about me I need God to help me I need God to help me in those areas of my thinking That are fractured and wrong Where I have emotional issues Where I have mental issues Whatever it may be I need you to change me I never show up in the presence of God Well I shouldn't say that Yes I do and Lord forgive me but I hope not to show up in the presence of God. I hope we don't show up in the presence of God with this idea that I've arrived, I'm good, I don't need help, thank you, I got my act together. Because I'll tell you what, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we come with a humility, and I love Mary's response, and it's the perfect response to every child of God and every person here that is maybe on the edge of becoming a child of God. The word of the Lord is coming to you. Jesus is in this room. The good news has been preached to you. You're hearing the ultimate truth of creation. All of creation's been standing on tiptoes, waiting for this Son of God, this Messiah, this Savior, this Lord, this King, this Great One, to come on the scene. All of creation's been waiting. And now the word has been spoken, and the only real response any of us can, can give to God is behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What a response. Perfection. The best response you could ever make to God. I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I'm not my own, I'm not negotiating with you. I'm not here to give a little bit of give and take. This is all either you receive it and believe it and enter into it or you reject it. But you can't dance on the edge. It's not time to be a fence dancer. It's time to say yes. I am the servant of the Lord. Be it unto me according to your word. What an amazing statement of simple childlike faith in God. Mary joins all who have believed throughout time Faith pleases God. This is ultimate faith. Faith delights and excites the heart of God. You can almost hear heaven swell with joy at that moment. When the response comes, you can only imagine... Trinity God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's celebration in heaven. All the angels are like, they're waiting on the edge of their seats. Waiting for the response of Mary. What will she say? What will she say? And all of a sudden she says, I, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Be it unto me according to your word. You can imagine all of heaven going, yeah! She said yes! Amen. Amen. Will you say yes? yes? Will you say yes, Lord? Be it unto me according to your word.